Hi, everyone, and welcome to White Rock Baptist Church. We're so grateful that you found us, whether you are listening in your car or maybe you're washing dishes or maybe even you've got your feet up and you are relaxed and ready to listen. Either way, we are glad that you're here with us today. Here at White Rock Baptist Church, we are in a summer sermon series called Small Part, Big Story. And each week we're exploring characters in the Bible who have small roles. Some of them only have a couple verses and one of them isn't even given a name, but they all play a part of the big story, often supporting the main characters we usually hear about in the Bible, but even bigger than that, playing a part of God's big story. And we find ourselves in that same sort of situation. We know that God has called each of us to serve him by serving others and that that plays a part in our church community, in our local community, but in God's big kingdom. And so we're just excited for the different opportunities that you um, are in or that you'll find yourself in. And we would just encourage you to check out our website. We'd love to connect with you, hear more from you. If you're able, join us on Sunday mornings online to hear these live or even come be with us in person if that's available to you. Either way, we trust that God is going to speak to you and hope that it is a meaningful time that God reveals a little bit more about who he is and who he's created you to be and what your role is in his big, glorious story. Thanks for listening. Amen. Thank you, Jason and the team. So not only... Is church now a thing? Uh, Movies are a thing. Anybody happy that they can finally go back to the movies? I see a couple. The rest of you are probably like, what? No, we don't do movies anymore. That's okay. That's fine. Uh, It's been over a year, but finally we can get back to the movies. Uh, And so my family and I went and watched Cruella the other day. Now, if you don't know, Cruella is the backstory to Cruella de Vil, the villain from 101 Dalmatians, if you can kind of remember that one. And uh, after the movie, both Cindy and I sort of looked at each other and made the comment that, wow, Disney has come a long way, hasn't it? Uh, that the villain can now be the hero of the story, yet that's what it is. And I could probably preach a whole bunch of sermons just on that kind of theme and that topic, but I'm not going to. Uh, For me, what I found fascinating about Cruella is it's a movie that tells the story of an individual. And there's this hero or anti-hero, however you want to put it, there's this focus, the protagonist of the story. But if you go into the credits, if you try and have a look at the cast, what blows me away about the story of Cruella is there are over a hundred supporting characters in that movie, as in characters that actually feature. They have a name, there's a scene, they play a part in the story of Cruella de Vil. So there are over a hundred people. But not only over a hundred people, there are also a whole bunch of extras You know, all the unnamed extras in the crowds. You know, you've watched those movies. You've seen those crowd scenes. Uh, We we kind of maybe lose some of how incredible that is historically because nowadays everything is CGI and computer graphics. And if we need a crowd, we just, you know, copy, paste, boom, there's the crowd, and away we go. Uh, But that kind of hit my ADD for a moment. And I was like, well, what movies have had big crowds? You know, and, and all these extras in their set. 
And you might be fascinated to know this. Well, I certainly was, so I'm going to share it with you anyway. Uh, The 1956 movie, The Ten Commandments, had a scene of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they used 14,000 extras in that movie. And you might kind of think, wow, that's pretty impressive to have 14,000 people that they're directing and coordinating. Just the logistics is interesting. But that pales in comparison to one of the largest movie scenes ever filmed. And it was from a film in 1982, the story of Gandhi. And in Gandhi's funeral scene, they had 300,000 extras on set. Uh, It's not really set that big anymore. It's kind of just a plane. But they had 300,000 extras to tell the story because that's kind of how the story played out in reality anyway. And so that kind of got my mind thinking about how often we'll watch a movie, and the movie is about a character. It's about this person, and, and there's this hero. And even if the, the hero is a group, like let's, let's switch over and say instead of Cruella, what about the Marvel Cinema Universe? So uh, the Marvel Cinema Universe, if you follow the Cinematic Universe timeline movies, there are about 23 movies, and those 23 movies tell the story of about 30 characters. And I say about because the Marvel Universe has 5,000 characters, main characters, by the way. So that's just crazy in my mind. Uh, But but these stories tell the story of these people. But it's never just the people. There are always hundreds of other characters. There are always thousands of extras. In fact, if you take Gandhi out of it and you do the math, generally there are about 1,000 people to tell the story of one. And you might go, well, Brian, that's a stretch. How did we get a 1,000 when you only had a 100 extras? Well, I haven't even included the cast and the crew, everyone behind the camera. You've got your camera crew. You've got your lighting crew. You've got your sound crew. There's the makeup artists. There's the, the wardrobes. There's all the post-production, so all the video editing and all the musical scores and all of those. And so to tell the story of one person, there are about a 1,000 people in the background. Now, of course, you might kind of go, okay, so what? Who cares? That's nothing new. We know that. Well, why I love it is because it's an, ana- it's an analogy or a metaphor for us. It's a metaphor for our lives. Because we go through life thinking, well, I'm the hero of the story. This is, you're all extras in my story right now. When somebody films the life of Brian Lowe, they're paying this guy way more than they're paying you guys. But isn't that how we all live our lives? We'll think we're the main character. We'll think it's about us. We'll make it about us. And so behind me, where I've got this kind of little stage set up, if you stick with the thought for a moment, we're all over here. Hey, Brian, it's all about me. I'm in the lights. I'm in the camera. The director's over there. And we forget that actually, in order for the story to be about me, there are a whole bunch of parts over there. I want you to keep that thought in mind. I want you to keep that analogy in mind. Because we do that with the story of God. We do that with the story of God. We get so absorbed in our little stories, our little lives, and and we make it all about us, and we forget that there is this big story at play. There's God's story through history going on. 
but we just have the small part in this big story. And if we sort of go, okay, well, what is God's big story? What is God doing through history? What is God doing in humanity? I used the word around the communion table a moment ago. It's the story of redemption. God's big story is redeeming humanity. God's big story is reconciling humanity back into relationship with our Heavenly Father. We don't need to be alienated and and distant from God. We are entering into relationship with God, our Father. It's the big story, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, when Paul speaks to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul makes it clear. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. And by this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul makes it clear over and over and over as he writes and as he preaches and as he evangelizes. He says, my life story is to proclaim the gospel. My life story is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the big story. And the reason Paul says that is because he's just echoing what Jesus himself said. And Jesus said in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus didn't come for his own power. Jesus didn't come for his own glory. Jesus didn't come so that he would be served. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. And that's the gospel. That's the good news that we celebrate around this table. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That Jesus died for our sins on the cross. But not only did he die, he rose back to life showing that he has the power. And that he gives life to those who believe. Which we know so well. You know, when I I read through the Gospels, and I try and keep this theme in mind of this big story, Jesus becomes our illustration. How many of you remember the the what would Jesus do kind of movement years ago? We all had bracelets that all said, what would Jesus do? So, you know, I try to spin this to my kids the other day. Dylan loves soccer. He's a big soccer fan. He plays soccer. He watches soccer. He enjoys it. And uh, and so for those of you who know soccer, especially with the Euro 2020 going on at the moment, uh, you might know the name Cristiano Ronaldo arguably one of the best soccer players in the world. And if you disagree with me, we can debate afterwards. But I would say arguably one of the best soccer players in the world. So I'm trying to motivate Dylan during one of his his practice sessions. And he kind of comes past. And as he comes past, I say to Dylan, hey, Dylan, what would Ronaldo do? Because, you know, I'm trying to motivate him. And without skipping a beat, my daughter turns to me and says, Dad, I thought it was what would Jesus do? (laughs) That's the problem with preacher's kids. They'll quote your own sermons back to you. But why do I say that? Because that's exactly how Jesus lived. In John chapter 5, Jesus tells his disciples, the Son of Man does nothing on his own accord. He does what he sees his Father doing. And where he sees his Father at work, that's where he works. Jesus made it very clear he was here for the big story of God. And he would be involved and he would serve and he would work in that big story. You and I are invited 
by Jesus Christ. We're invited to see that there is a big story at work around us. And we have a small part to play in that. And that's going to be our theme for the next few weeks of summer. The series we're tackling is small part, big story. And why I'm excited about small part, big story is because we as a pastoral team have deliberately looked through scripture to try and find some of those characters that play really small parts. Maybe even some characters that don't get named, but yet they play a significant part, the small part, in the big story of God. So if you have your Bibles with you today, I'm going to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 9, and we're going to look at a couple of verses there. It will be up on the screen as well, uh, but if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and read there. And of course, you're going to open Acts chapter 9 and see the heading that it's Saul's conversion or Paul's conversion. That's not where we're starting. All the way towards the end of Acts chapter 9 in verse 36. Let's read together. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died. And her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. And then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. And then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. When I I read just those couple of verses, I'm forced to ask the question, what does the world generally admire and reward? If, if we think about the world around us and we think about what we see on, on movies and TV and social media and, and news and all those things, what does the world around us admire and reward? Well, typically the world admires and rewards success. It admires and rewards wealth, celebrity, achievements, fame. The world admires what we can contribute by what we do and what we've done. And the world rewards us if we've done enough of these big things. But yet when I read through scripture, and I ask that question, well, what does God reward and what does God admire in comparison to how the world rewards and admires? It's a very different list. In fact, when I read through scripture, I find God admires and rewards worship. He admires and rewards obedience, faithfulness. And especially, he admires and rewards service. God looks for those who serve. You might go, well, Brian, why do you say that? Well, Dorcas's story, the story of Tabitha over here, answers it for us. That's exactly what set her apart. It was because Dorcas was a servant in the church of Christ. 
Now, there, there are a couple of context things we just need to point out from this passage very quickly. So this little group of Christians, these disciples, live in a place called Joppa. Joppa is a coastal city on the Mediterranean. And so most of the trade, most of the wealth, most of the business of that city had to do with the ocean. So Joppa would see many husbands and fathers heading off onto the ocean, whether to go and fish or whether to go and trade, but they would head off. And many would be lost at sea or many would never return because of the harsh realities of life at that stage. And so in terms of a city, Joppa had a pretty high percentage of widows in that city. And we know this because of what Peter even says when we read through in verse 39, call the widows, and the widows are showing what she had done. And when I think about that, it should be pretty evident and pretty obvious that even a surface reading through the scriptures, a surface reading through the gospels or through the acts of the apostles, a surface reading uh, even through some of the Old Testament will will reveal that God has a concern for widows and orphans. This shouldn't be new to us. God cares for the marginalized. God cares for those on the outskirts of society. God cares for those who do not have the security and the support of family and and community around them. God is moved with compassion for those who are in need. And so every time God moves in his big story, the needs of the least of these are going to feature. And so we see that in Joppa. And then we meet this character, and she has two names, and that shouldn't be surprising to us. We, we meet people who have two names all the time, perhaps uh, one birth name from whatever cultural nationality they are, and then because they've realized that so many people just can't pronounce or massacre their names, it's just become easier to go, well, just call me Brian instead. And this is what we have with Tabitha. Tabitha in Hebrew, Dorcas in Greek. Uh, Tabitha literally means gazelle. But of course, names get nuance and names get meaning. And so the the metaphorical or the symbolic meaning of the name of Tabitha is graceful. And so we have over here a picture of a graceful, uh, gentle, humble woman and uh, this individual who serves. Now, we don't know for certain if she's a widow, but a lot of commentators tend to think she probably was a widow. The very fact that around her deathbed are widows who show the apostles the the clothing she's made. And the very fact that after this healing, the, the widows are called for. So it's probable that she was a widow. But even if she wasn't, she shows a concern and a deep care for those who have been affected by tragedy and by trials. And so she simply serves as best she can. Even through perhaps the pain of her own experience and the pain of others, she serves in compassion. And then, we're going to have a quick word nerd moment. If you're visiting with us or you're watching online, every now and then I have a word nerd moment. And this one has that. Verse 36, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. And we've missed it because we've read it in English. And we we read it so often that it kind of just, yeah, okay, sure, that seems logical, seems fair enough. But in the Greek text, Luke writing the book of Acts, remember Luke is a disciple of Peter who's performing the miracle, Luke is writing the book of Acts. In the Greek text, 
This is the first and only time this word that we've translated disciple exists. You see, the, the Greek word for disciple is mathetes. Mathetes. And it's a masculine noun. And a mathetes, or a disciple, is a learner, a student, one who follows someone's teachings, one who learns through practice. It's a little bit like my daughter, and I'm going to have to pay her for this illustration because she doesn't know it's coming. She got her learner's license this past week, and so our family are now in that stage of life where I'm teaching my daughter how to drive, and Cindy's teaching our daughter how to drive. That learner's license simply says, yes, you know the theory, but now you need to practice by copying. You need to practice by doing. You need someone to explain and teach and indeed show But my daughter cannot sit in the passenger seat of the car for the next year and then try and do her driver's test. How do you think that's likely to go? The only way she can get to her driver's test is to sit behind the steering wheel and to be shown how to drive. And so she's learning. She is a disciple, for want of a better word. She is a mathetes. But you see, the problem is, mathetes is a masculine noun. And Luke decides that's not good enough. Luke decides to call her a mathetria. Mathetes for the male, mathetria. Again, many languages have that with nouns and to differentiate the gender of the word, whether male or female. And so Luke decides, I'm going to take the root word and I'm going to put a feminine on it. Why does Luke do this? He makes it very difficult for us to enforce some sort of misogynistic rule over women. And I love that. Do you know why Luke does this? Because Tabitha is not second rate. She is not like a disciple. She is a disciple. Now, I know we're Baptist. I know we keep quiet. But that was an amen moment, people. Luke goes. This woman isn't just like a disciple in the church. She's not just a servant. She's not just one who does some stuff, and so let's try and give her this label, even though it doesn't fit. No, she is a disciple in the church of Christ. She's a learner who follows Christ's teachings. She puts Jesus' words into practice, and her faith and loyalty to Christ are evident in her service. And so Luke gives her that due recognition. Now, of course, we we might be inclined to think, well, she was just a servant. It's fine that that, uh, we use this word of disciple, but she's just a servant. She didn't do any real gospel work. I love how Luke shows that her service was rendered precisely because she was a disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, as as an aside, as we have that little kind of moment around Tabitha, I love the fact that the story is at the end of Acts chapter 9. You know, in Acts chapter 9, I mentioned it a moment ago, it begins with Paul's conversion. It's the story how one of the biggest players in the New Testament, who ended up writing most of the New Testament, who, who wrote most of the theology that we believe and hold to, 
It was Paul. And, and he saved and converted. And, and we might read through that and get so sidetracked by Paul that we just move on with this main character. But I love how Luke records not just this main character. In the very same chapter, in the very same kind of journey and part of the story, Luke records for us, no, there's this character. There's this disciple. There's this lady who serves in the church. And in God's economy, there are no big parts and small parts. Because in relation to God, we are all small. Even Paul says over and over, I'm the worst of sinners. And the very things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, that's what I keep finding myself doing. In fact, Paul points back to Christ over and over, and that's what Tabitha does. As a disciple of Jesus, she points back to him in her service. She puts the words of Christ into practice. And that's how it should be, because that's what Jesus tells us to do. In Matthew chapter 7, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who builds their house on the rock. Jesus isn't giving architectural advice or engineering advice. Jesus is saying, if you want to be like that, put my words into practice. And then later on, Jesus' own brother, James, echoes that thought in James chapter 1. Don't just be merely hearers of the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. My church, I think we have a problem. You see, we're content to read this book. We're content to know what it says. We're content to be like my daughter who has a learner's license. And then we simply sit. When Jesus says, put my words into practice. You are my disciples if you do this. Amen indeed. So how does Dorcas do this? How does she put the words into practice? Well, she was a disciple who ministered. In verse 36, the second half of that, she was always doing good and helping the poor. And we know from verse 39 that she made clothing for those in need. She ministered through practical works that were needed by the community. And so while the world does for us have need for theologians who study and debate the scriptures, it has far more need for those who love Christ and who love people and who serve who simply and humbly serve through practical means. Routinely, the the scriptures refer to the congregation, to us as a body, and it uses this metaphor of a human body, revealing that we need all the parts of the body. Every part has a role, and the Holy Spirit moves through each part, and by the gift of grace, the Holy Spirit equips and empowers us to serve one another. And so Tabitha had a gift in making clothing, and that's what she did. What is your gift? I know some of you might turn around and go, well, I don't really know what my gift is. I haven't done one of those gift inventories that were all the rage 20 years ago. Well, I know you have passions. I know you have inclinations. I know you have abilities. I can guarantee you if you start serving somewhere in line with that, you're going to discover the gift of God at work through you. That's what Tabitha did. Through humble acts of service, she helped the poor and she served. That's all that is required from us. What happened as she served? Well, she was rewarded. Not in heaven. She was rewarded in that moment. 
You know, a couple of months ago, maybe even years ago, I, I forget, but at some point in the past at White Rock Baptist Church, I preached a sermon where I made the, said the words, if you're not dead, you're not done. You remember that? Anybody? Okay. If you're not dead, you're not done. Well, the Bible's gone and proved me wrong. Because even if you're dead, you might not be done. <laughs> this is her reward. The faithful acts of service. And so Peter sends the widows out the room. He gets down on his knees and he prays. And then he tells her, Tabitha, get up. And she gets up. And Peter brings her out and calls the widows to her. God rewards her so that she can get back on to serving the community. She doesn't start a web page dedicated to how God raised her back to life because she's the chosen one. She doesn't go on a speaking circuit touring the Mediterranean and telling people how they too can be raised back to life. She doesn't become a celebrity star who thinks it's all about her. No, she keeps on serving. And what happened through her service? She became a witness, pointing back to God. In verse 42, this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Her life and this miraculous event became a witness back to the big story of God at play. It reminds me of the the story of Jesus and the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5, where at the end, this demon-possessed man healed of his possession, wants to go with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you need to stay. You need to be my witness to the goodness of God in this place. And the man stays and, and declares the glory of God. Now, yeah, I used those words a moment ago about Tabitha doesn't go on a speaking circuit, doesn't start up a blog. I, I kind of use that a bit tongue-in-cheek because I know that many of us have gone through incredibly painful experiences. And it's through those experiences and it's through telling those experiences that we can bring glory back to God as we acknowledge God at work in those. And some of us have. We've been through the valley of the shadow of death There are many people in this room today, this morning, who've had to bury their own children. There are others who've lost loved ones in incredibly tragic ways. I never assume or never presume to know exactly every one of those feelings and those experiences, but praise be to God, I know God knows them. And God holds us. And God says, if you will trust me, I will use that story in the big story. And it will bring glory back to me. It will bring glory back to God. You see, it should never be all about us. And that's what happens when we try and make it all about us, when we we try and have our own big story. And I love God, I love the, the humility of God, if I could put it that way. God never forces himself on us. In fact, God says, if you want to go on the stage and you want to make it all about you, have at it. See how many people really are interested in that movie. None of you would be interested in the story of Brian Lowe, I can assure you. It's a terrible movie. So God says, if you want to make it all about you, if you want to amass, if you want to accrue, if you want to have a big story, go for it. It will be dull and fade. God says, my story is the big story that will last for eternity. And so you are invited in to that story. So what? How do we, how do we land this plane? How do we close this morning? What do we learn from the story of Tabitha? How do we apply this? You see, over and over, the scriptures call us to service. 
I love that illustration in Matthew chapter 20 where the disciples come to Jesus and, and they start trying to vie for positions of power. And two of the disciples want Jesus to put them at his left and right hand. And then the other disciples get upset with them. And it soon becomes apparent they're only upset because they didn't think of it first. And at the end of Matthew chapter 20, Jesus reminds them that, you know what, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. But not so with you. You need to become a servant. Just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. In fact, he uses the word, whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And Paul echoes this in Philippians chapter 2, kind of one of the most powerful anthems of, of praise to God in Philippians 2, where Paul says of Jesus Christ, and he says to us, have the same mind that is in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, meaning Jesus is God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead made himself nothing. And I love the words. Instead, made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant. And then, facing death for us. Over and over, the scriptures call us to serve and to become servants to one another. And we're invited to serve. And so I know many of you call White Rock Baptist Church your home church. And you might go, well, Brian, how do I put this into practice? It's really easy. Look for opportunities to serve one another. Maybe it's in a structured, formal ministry. We have needs in all our ministries. Do you know what happens when a church kind of stays closed for over a year? People get really comfortable with just consuming church through their screen. No offense to anybody at home at the moment. We kind of just, it, it becomes our habit. We become comfortable with it. And so this past week when we were in the office celebrating that, woohoo, the church is open. Oh, wait, we need Sunday school teachers. Oh, we need ushers. We need some help with coffee and tea in the activity hall afterwards. We need some help on the tech. We need, we need some worship. Oh, oh, yeah. That's where you come in. And so I'm not going to guilt trip you into anything, but I'm going to invite you over the next month as we journey through small part, big story, you're going to see invitations on our webpage. You're going to see invitations through our weekly communication. You're going to see different ministries highlighted where there are needs for people to simply serve. You don't need to have a PhD in theology to help make coffee in the kitchen. You just need a willing servant heart that says, I want to serve. Look for opportunities to serve. And then for those of you who perhaps are not part of White Rock Baptist Church, maybe don't call this church home or you're, you're joining online, you are placed somewhere. God has put you and God invites you to look for opportunities to serve. It might be making a meal for a neighbor in need. It might be encouraging a colleague. It might simply be sharing something you have that you know somebody else needs use of. Look for opportunities to serve. I said a moment ago, God is humble and will not force himself upon you. You're welcome to try and take center stage and make the story all about you. But I want to remind you, as Jesus said, what good is it to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? How do you not forfeit your soul? By serving God as you serve others. It is God's big story that will last for eternity. And you and I are invited to play a small part. Let's pray together.
Father God, I'm just in awe of that incredible story of God. That God, since and before the creation of the world, you set in motion what we call the gospel. You set in motion the story of redemption for humanity. You knew that we would rebel and reject, that we would turn our our backs to you and try and go our own way. But yet that didn't stop you. In your incredible love, you paved the way. And in your love, so great as it was, you gave your son. You gave your son to die on the cross in our place so that those who believe would have eternal life in you. And this is the good news. And God, as we journey over the next few weeks, just reminding ourselves of that big story and then having a look at a couple of small parts that highlight and point back to the big story of God. Oh God, I pray that you would help these small parts, help us to take our eyes off ourselves, help us to stop trying to make it all about us, but rather help us find that place where we might serve you as we serve others. God, it is the the prayer and the hope and the cry of White Rock Baptist Church that ultimately we would impact the world. We know that we will only impact the world as we serve. So God, I ask, Holy Spirit, come and fill us with your spirit that we might declare the goodness of Christ as we serve. And may you receive all glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus and together we say, Amen.